from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today... We can't stand idly by why people are dying and justice is not being adjudicated in a timely manner. A state Senate committee is beginning an investigation into conditions at the Fulton County Jail, where 10 prisoners have died in custody this year. They'll also look at factors contributing to the jail's extreme overcrowding. I'm Bill Nygut. We now have a preview of some of the witnesses Fannie Willis will likely call to testify when the election interference trial of two defendants begins later this month. And I'm Tia Mitchell, live from Washington. Georgia Republicans in the U.S. House are weighing who they want to support for speaker. But the question is, will they be swayed by Donald Trump, who has endorsed Jim Jordan? We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Greg Bluestein is off today, but we are joined by our AJC colleague, Maya Prabhu. Maya, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, it's been a huge news week. We started the week with a house speaker. We end the week without a house speaker. We don't know what's going on in Washington. We have uh, a lot of other hijinks and events happening here in Georgia. Tia, are you still alive? Is this thing on? Are you okay? Yeah, welcome to my world. It's all (laughs) confusion and disarray and chaos. And we're trying our best to follow it. But it also doesn't help that like, Congress is out of session as if there isn't another government shutdown deadline looming and no House Speaker. There's some line about whistling past the graveyard, but I can't remember exactly what it is. Bill, you um, in the old days were up in D.C. a ton. I even saw you once on the Capitol steps during Bill Clinton's impeachment. (laughs) Yeah. And then I think there was some there was a major House Speaker shakeup right around that era. Is all of this bringing back wonderful memories? Well, to you, too. I I have to say it's been a long time (laughs) since my days at Channel 2 News when I would, as you said, go to Washington for all the big stories. I really envy Tia right now. I know she's working. I kind of do too. Hours, I know. But wouldn't you love to be up there covering? God, all this? it's like a disease. Like you're just drawn to the chaos. <laughs> but I guess we're not alone. That's right. called Washington. <laughs> well, we've got a lot to get into. As we can see, this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to the AJC's Politically Georgia. Greg Bluestein is off today, but we are so glad to have our AJC colleague, Maya Prabhu, joining us here in the studio. Maya, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Well, 
Bellantia, before we get to our top story, let's mention that we're here at WABE preparing for the start of our live radio show. Politically Georgia, Monday through Friday, will air at 10 a.m. on 90.1 FM starting Monday, October 30th. A state committee has begun an investigation into what observers all agree are deplorable conditions at the Fulton County Jail. Ten inmates have died in custody so far in the first nine months of this year alone, and the jail is dangerously overcrowded as a backlog of cases dog the Fulton County court system. Maya, you and I were both at a press conference yesterday, along with Greg, where Roswell Senator John Albers, along with Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, announced their plans to start an investigation into the jail. Uh, Bring us up to speed on what they had to say. Yeah, so they are forming this subcommittee underneath the Senate Public Safety Committee that Senator Albers chairs. Um, Senator Randy Robertson, who is a former sheriff's deputy in um, Muskogee County um, and has worked with jails will be leading that committee and they are going to be looking into issues at the Fulton County Jail. Um, The deaths, the overcrowding, the unsafe conditions and, um, you know, how funds are being allocated and where resources are being um, directed that could or that may or may not be leading to what the issues are right now of course this is the jail that became frankly internationally famous um, recently when donald trump checked himself into that jail and as well as all 18 defendants in the case uh, went in had their fingerprints had their mugshots donald trump reported back um, that it was a terrible experience Um, however we have known for a long time in atlanta um, that it's worse than a terrible experience for a lot of inmates there um really horrendous conditions and the senator said they went on a tour of the jail earlier this week did you talk to any of them about what they saw i did not chat with anyone about what they saw but i know that you know they are the senators are known for their field trips and um getting eyes on what the issues can be and you know hopefully that helps inform their decisions as they go forward and you know, they said that this committee is all about coming up with solutions, solutions that they can use to help, um, you know, the folks in Fulton County maybe make some decisions to to get things back on track. OK. And Bill, we had in the jolt earlier today reporting that um, Fulton County, sadly, is not an isolated incident as um, as horrendous as the, as the conditions are there, as dangerous as they are there. Um very similar situations in Augusta, in Chatham County. Uh, there are state prisons also that have had problems of their own. Um, do we think that having a Senate committee look at just the Fulton County Jail is a good start? I, I think that's a really excellent question. And I, and I think it's one of the reasons Senator Albers made a comment that he did during this news conference. We can talk about that in a minute. But first, you're correct. I mean, Smith State Prison which is notorious for the violence and uh, dreadful conditions. They just had a death in the uh, prison uh, recently. And, and so I guess, Maya, the question is, this is a state subcommittee of the legislature, which means they certainly are free to look at conditions in other institutions, penal institutions. They focus on Fulton County which led Senator Albers yesterday to essentially say, I don't have his exact quote, but what he basically was saying is, no, no, this isn't partisan. 
we're not investigating Fulton County Jail, overcrowding, bad conditions because of Fonnie Willis's, she, he didn't say these words, but the implication was we're not trying to get back at her because of her prosecution of Donald Trump and the other defendants. Right. He he made a point of saying, you know, everyone else is politicizing this and that's not what this is about. Um, this is about getting, you know, investigating, gathering evidence, gathering details and going wherever the details um, takes them. Uh he said to, to focus on any one person or any one office would be premature and they just want to look into what's going on in Fulton, Fulton County and how they can make things better for the folks in the jail there. Okay, I'm going to bring uh, Tia in because Tia, um, it's uh, not just something that local lawmakers are interested in when we talk about conditions at Georgia uh, jails and prisons. Uh, Senator John Ossoff spent quite a bit of time last year investigating uh, some jails down here as well and prisons. Tell us a little bit about what Ossoff was looking into and what he found. Yeah, Senator Ossoff, of course, he's mostly focused on the federal prison system, but we know there are many of them in Georgia. So he's raised questions about the penitentiary penitentiary in Atlanta, the Pulaski Federal Prison. Also, even more, more recently, he asked for a federal investigation of the Clayton County Jail. So kind of along the similar veins of what we've heard about the Fulton County Jail. So for Ossoff, um, who um, the committee he chairs, he's used that to kind of raise these questions about the law enforcement system, the penal system more generally, but mostly asking to see if there are any violations of like federal um, civil or human rights laws. I do think it's interesting the point you guys raised about at the state level, these state senators are investigating the Fulton County Jail, which again is under the purview of Fulton County leaders, but they're not yet launching investigations of the state prisons which are more directly under their purview as state lawmakers i just find that really interesting and that was a that was a question that i asked um senator albers during this press conference um you know we had that corrections officer who was killed in smith that bill mentioned we had uh reporting in the atlanta journal constitution about hundreds of corrections officers being arrested in the past five years for sneaking in, you know, for, for various things, but mostly sneaking in contraband like cell phones and drugs into prisons. And so for years, we've known that there are these issues at the state level. And, and when I asked him, you know, is there going to be a committee that's looking into this? He said, you know, we're letting the Department of Corrections investigate that incident from that terrible incident from over the weekend. And and we'll see um, what the results of that investigation are. And we are willing to do what we need to do to make sure that they have all the resources that they need. Yeah, I talked to Senator Albers after the press conference as well and followed up on your question because I thought it was such a good one. And then after you asked your question, like, okay, no more questions. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to continue to ask him some questions about that. Um, he said that he felt like um, the primary problem at the state level are um, gangs that continue to operate inside the state prisons, um, but that they felt like uh, the state had allocated um, more resources for cell phone jammers, um, for drone technology to um, have a better sense of what's happening in the prisons to get their arms around um, kind of gang activities. Um, I don't know that that 
has really solved all of the problems because we are, um, I know, continuing to have reporting from our really excellent investigative team, um, including Carrie Teagarden, um, that uh, there continue to be some real problems uh, with ongoing violence in these jails as well. And I think we'll continue to hear um, about that reporting. Um, Bill, the senators made the point um, that there this is sort of a multi-pronged situation that l- has led to overcrowding in these jails. And again, it's not just Fulton County. There are There's overcrowding um, at uh, these pre-trial detention facilities um, all over the state. And one challenge are the court systems, that they are badly backlogged, even still from COVID. Um, What do you think about that as a situation? We do know that um, many of the people who died in custody had, uh, in some cases, not even had a bond hearing, um, let alone an arraignment or or an indictment. Which is just heartbreaking when you think about it. Um, but And in terms of that, though, um, Senator Albers uh, said in the news conference, and you, you, one of you two can correct me if I'm wrong, I think he said he wanted to make sure that the public realizes that the people in the Fulton County Jail are pre-trial inmates. But that isn't completely the case. There are people in the Fulton County Jail who have been uh, convicted of crimes and are still in the county jail. So one of the questions I'd be interested in hearing whether the committee will address is, what's going on that those people are not being transferred to the state prisons, which is where a convicted criminal is supposed to be housed? It Are we facing overcrowding in our, some of our state prisons? We went through that in a very big way back in the 90s here when the state prisons, thanks to Zell Miller's two strikes and you're out, law uh, were terribly overcrowded and county jails were ended up being holding facilities for convicted prisoners. So I would hope that the uh, subcommittee will look into not only the conditions for pretrial uh, defendants, but, but also why are some of these people who should have been moved not being moved. Yeah, well, I'm sure that they're going to, they said that they would have this be kind of a soup to nuts um, investigation. Um, although uh, there, but when they did mention the court system, there was discussion of DA offices not bringing this up. Um, and that immediately led to questions from reporters about Fonnie Willis. Um, Maya, do you think there's any way to keep this out of a political conversation when you have state senators, including Birchens, who was at the press conference and who had been named as a target of Fannie Willis's investigation, um, having uh, this look at the Fulton County system, is there a way to keep this out of politics? I think that the senators are going to at least put on the face in these committee hearings that that this is they this is all about collecting evidence and facts, I think it's going to be interesting to see who is called in as witnesses to give testimony about what's going on. Because I think a lot of times in these types of hearings, it's not necessarily the senators themselves that make it political, but it's the folks that come in and talk about it and then things shift in that way. But I, you know, I, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jones made a point of saying that this was not going to be adversarial. Um, that this is strictly about collecting information and figuring out solutions that can help Fulton County get things under control. Can I add one other uh, uh, um, piece of information that I thought was fascinating? Just in today's AJC, Jim Gaines has a piece on the front page in which he talks about the fact 
that uh, commissioners, Fulton County commissioners are looking to the sheriff to explain why his department um, spent uh, more than $2 million for, for technology from an Alpharetta company that makes wristbands that are supposed to monitor the health of inmates. And we know inmate sickness uh, has been a, a huge problem and they're not being attended to. And, and one of the things that a couple of the commissioners said was, you've spent all this money on these monitoring devices. Most of them aren't in use at all. So this notion that um, technology is going to solve the problem, at least in this case, and Labatt's answer is, well, they only last for 30 days. We haven't been able to get them out to as many people yet that we want to. But um, technology may help whether it's drones or other devices, but obviously there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I thought Jim Gaines' piece today made that really clear. Yeah, well, I think physical health, mental health yeah. is also a huge problem in the prisons. It's a huge problem here in the state, um, even at local sheriff's departments as well. And uh, Tia, in the strangest way, Donald Trump being brought to the Fulton County Prison um, and talking about that facility, it led to an immense amount of scrutiny about the jail because national and international reporters started to write about it. Right, which was so interesting because... Let's be honest, Donald Trump really didn't get into the jail the way the inmates who are complaining about the conditions, who are facing the safety and um, the threats to their safety and um, health. Um, he didn't see that side of the jail. Only one of the 19 defendants spent any, um, you know, re any really uh measurable time inside the Fulton County Jail. Um, but that being said, the awareness, I mean, I'm sure there are there are plenty of activists, including the Black Lives Matter activists that a lot of conservatives like to deride. But I remember when I was back in Atlanta covering DeKalb County, attending uh, protests about the DeKalb County Jail back in 2017 and 2018. So it's interesting. We saw the same thing with Marjorie Taylor Greene after January 6th, talking about conditions at the jail in Washington, D.C. And there were activists like, yeah, where you been? We've been talking about issues at um, the jail. I just want to, um, Bill kind of pointed this out, but I want to put a finer point on it. Fonnie Willis is not the jail administrator. Yes, she's the prosecutor. She might send people to the jail, but she is not in charge of running the jail. And that is Sheriff Pat Labatt in Fulton County. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Pat Labatt was elected in 2020, as was Fonnie Willis. Um, they both relatively new to their jobs, and they certainly have um, a lot on their plates uh, in both of these situations. Well, Maya, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. We're going to bring you back in many times. Oh, yeah. Looking forward Not to it. Not to worry. We'll looking see you again soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, just ahead, we now have an idea about witnesses Fonnie Willis is likely to call to testify when the first trial of election interference defendants gets underway in just a few weeks. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements. 
are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Jury selection in the trial of two defendants in the Fulton County election interference case is set to begin in just two weeks. And now we have some clues about how prosecutors will pursue their case against Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough. The AJC's Tamar Hallerman is reporting that prosecutors plan to call on key witnesses to several threads of the alleged conspiracy. Bill, what do we know about some of these witnesses and who is likely to be called? Um, the witnesses that Tamar has identified um, who are likely to be called, uh, sort of fit into two separate buckets in terms of this investigation. So, for example, um, one of the people who uh, the DA's office is petitioning to to get testimony from, and by the way, since I'm not a lawyer, I'm not quite sure I understand the difference between a petition and an actual subpoena, but at this point they're being petitioned. Maybe somebody out there can explain it. One of Ms. Boris Epstein who has been a very close advisor and lawyer for Donald Trump on the inner circle for quite some time. And and one of the reasons that apparently Epstein is being called is um, the DA's office, I think, believes that he will be able to give testimony that will explain Sidney Powell's involvement in uh, the uh, effort to, with a successful effort, to uh, get voter-sensitive and confidential voter materials out of the Coffee County uh, Dominion voting machines. Um, Kathy Latham is also one of the defendants uh, in, in that part of the conspiracy case. And Epstein apparently was involved with Sidney Powell in how they worked out that arrangement for those, that group to go down to Coffee County and try to get material that somehow showed the Dominion voting machines could flip ballots from Trump to um, uh, uh, Joe Biden. On the other hand, Lynn Wood, the former Atlanta lawyer um, who became, who, well, let me be really candid, Patricia. Please. There was a time when Lynn Wood <laughs> was a highly respected lawyer. Highly respected. I mean, he was considered one of the great criminal defense lawyers. Yes. And he just went all Trumpy on us. Yes. I mean, went way overboard. Um, but he has an estate in South Carolina. And apparently there were a number of meetings at his estate, including people uh, who were like Kenneth Chesborough, who were involved in the effort to establish these slates of alternate, or what we would call, fake Trump delegates. And so there's a sense that uh, perhaps Lynn Wood and several other uh, people will be able to comment more specifically on how Mark Meadows, um, how uh, uh, Chessborough, uh, maybe Rudolph Giuliani, um, were all involved in uh, that effort. So there's kind of two different tracks there, I think, based on the way I'm reading this. But here's what's astonishing. Jury selection, you already said it. Jury selection in this first trial, because Chesbro and Powell uh, exercise their right to an early trial, starts in a matter of a couple of weeks, October 20th. It's upon us. It is upon us. And Tia, when we talk about just simply jury selection, um, we have, I would say, 
all of us and just about anybody listening has probably been called for jury duty. We know what it's like to go through that process. But at, in Fulton County with these RICO cases, it can take a very, very long time to seat a jury. So just because they're beginning jury selection does not mean that we're going to have an, a complete unveiling of uh, what Fonnie Willis um, knows and, and the path she's going to start to take. Um, Tia, there is another racketeering case that's um, trying to have jury selection here in Georgia with the Young Thug case, um, but that's taken a very, very long time. Right. And what's interesting is just this past week, there was a potential juror for that um, Young Thug YSL case that was dismissed because that juror expressed strong feelings about the DA's office, about Fonnie Willis, because of the Trump RICO case. So if the Trump RICO case is already affecting jurors in a totally unrelated case, think how difficult it is to find, it may be, to find an impartial jury for this, you know, for some of the co-defendants who may not be tried with Trump, but there's been so much attention, people will know that it's related to the Trump indictment. So again, I think they're hoping to find a jury um, to get that trial started later this month, but Jury selection might not be as smooth as I think the judge and the prosecutors and even the attorneys for um, Sidney Powell and Mr. Chesborough are hoping to actually keep this timeline intact. Patricia, if I could jump in just to explain something further. I I sort of talked about this as two separate tracks. To some extent, they're not. Um, For instance, Um, Although Lynn Wood certainly was uh, apparently well aware of what was happening with the uh, uh, fake elector uh, scheme, Um, he also um, was involved in communications uh, with Sidney Powell uh, showing her plans to uh, deal with this uh, going after the Dominion voting machines down in South Georgia. So Lynn Wood could be a key to this, and I, I, I think I maybe... Uh, created a false impression. These are completely separate tracks. Lynn Wood could be a very important witness uh, for this whole conspiracy. Well, I think, and that's the entire point behind a the concept of racketeering and conspiracy is that there may be multiple tracks of events, but they are all um, allegedly interrelated, and that's what makes it a conspiracy in the first place. And Bill Fonnie Willis has said um, that she does plan to lay out um, the details of a conspiracy at this trial. There has there had been um, once Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell said that they wanted a speedy trial and they were granted a speedy trial. That meant that this would break into, at the very least, two separate trials, but that anybody being tried later would then kind of get a sneak peek at the case that Fonnie Willis has against them. Yeah, I think that that this first trial is going to give defense attorneys, um, including Trump's defense attorneys, a lot of information about how the case will be prosecuted against Trump and the at least maybe a dozen by the time we get to that trial other uh, defendants because we know some have made plea agreements, others are talking about it, Um, which is why I mentioned this on the podcast the other day and who knows what's happening, but if I were in the DA's office, I would be doing everything I possibly could to get some kind of plea deals out of of, uh, Chessborough 
and Sidney Powell to avoid revealing as much as they're going to end up having to reveal about the case they'll present in this early trial. Yes. Um, Kenneth Chesbro, of course, is the attorney who laid out this entire concept yeah. of how this uh, how this could work. Um, from some of the attorneys, um, particularly Lynn Wood, they have said, um, we didn't do anything wrong. We were giving advice um, and uh, they decided to take it. And there are multiple different types of advice you could give as an attorney. So um, I don't know if it, it is so unusual to see attorneys on trial for the advice that they gave um, uh, because their uh, clients decided to take that advice. Um, Tia, but speaking of plea deals, of course, another major development in the case uh, that, we, that we've that we talked about briefly is the fact that there has already been one plea deal. Scott Hall, the Atlanta bail bondsman, um, did decide to take a plea deal. Um, part of that has been his willingness um, in the court documents. Uh, we've been told to testify fully and truthfully um, as a part of this case. And uh, Scott Hall was also involved um, in the Coffee County situation. So, Tio, um, through this pr- process, we could learn a great deal about the events um, in Coffee County and other um, other pieces of this uh, that could be used at the later trial. Right, and a lot will depend on what Scott Hall now tells prosecutors as part of that plea deal. As um, we know, the prosecutors have reached out to others. Tamar also reported that so far there have been no takers that we know of, but the district attorney is working to um, get other co-defendants to take a plea deal, and we know that could lead to more information because there's a lot, there's a lot we don't know still about Coffee County and quite frankly a lot of some of the defendants i'm thinking about sydney powell like a big part of her defense that we've heard is that she says the prosecutors have overblown her role in what happened in coffee county and so i think that perhaps or what the prosecutors are hoping is that they can get some of the people who were also involved to talk about kind of how everything unfolded, who was calling the shots, um, and fill in some of the blanks. So we don't know yet what Scott Hall has told them, but it's those are the kind of things that could come out as we move forward to these trials. One of the other things that we've learned about uh, who the DA wants to call as witnesses in this first trial is really interesting. Fonnie Willis has said for some time that when you create a RICO conspiracy case like this, you can bring in um, evidence of a conspiracy that spread beyond Georgia. And as a result of that, we now know that um, the DA's office apparently is calling for witnesses from three different states, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, which were narrowly divided states that Biden won. And um, the question is, does she intend to have those witnesses testify to the fake elector schemes that took place in other states as well as in Georgia? So she's spreading her tentacles far and wide in this first trial. That's exactly right. And so um, speaking of far and wide, let's take a step back at what we're looking at here, because along with the trial here in Fulton County, um, there is a civil case against Donald Trump in New York, where he appeared in court earlier this week and um, also gave a press conference afterward um, declaring his innocence in that and all of these other cases, saying that these are all just a witch hunt, uh, Tia. And uh, 
meanwhile, there is a presidential campaign happening. There are other candidates in Iowa and New Hampshire doing normal things with um, regular people. But Donald Trump has turned his court trials into almost campaign events. It's part of his messaging apparatus. It's almost the only campaigning he has time for right now. And not only that, he's reported the actual documents aren't available yet, um, but he's reported that he's raised like 40 something million dollars this last quarter based largely upon outrage from these indictments. Um, He says he raised three times more than Ron DeSantis, who's been kind of his his shadow the the one the most prolific fundraiser next to Donald Trump in this crowded Republican primary so what we know is that Donald Trump believes and he said that that he believes these indictments are a boost to his campaign and so therefore in a lot of ways he's leaned into not just being indicted but like telling his supporters that these indictments are not just an attack on him. They're an attack on them. They're part of, you know, the bigger the bigger kind of themes we see in Republican politics where um, everything is about almost like a fight and a war and they're they're after you. And and so in a lot of ways, the indictments have been the most visible example that Trump has used to kind of bring those themes home to his supporters. And it looks like it's working, which is why he continues to do it. Bill, part of the reason it might be working is that we did our own poll of Republican voters here in the state with the AJC through the University of Georgia. And we saw that more than um, 60 percent, well over 60 percent of Republican voters agreed that these indictments look political, particularly the Fonnie Willis indictment. So um, even though it defies all logic that a former president would be in a courtroom under the Klieg lights of scrutiny, yet it seems to be helping his campaign. For him to have raised three times as much as Ron DeSantis, who in theory is the is in second place for this nomination, the person best positioned and had been raising a lot of money, um, it has got to be so frustrating for these other candidates to see what, how it's unfolding. Yeah, I, I mean... I- it, it tells us several things. Number one, it tells us about the extraordinary grip that Donald Trump has on his voters who seem to make up a majority of the voter pool for the primary uh, uh, election. We've never seen anything like this. And we can go back through presidential campaign history and see various scandals that have brought down uh, candidates and uh what Trump now, with four indi- four different uh, indictments facing him, uh, you would think that's the greatest scandal of any of them that we watched, uh, and yet it hasn't done a thing. And you're right for the uh, for the other candidates, and by the way, for the Republicans who do not want to see Donald Trump back in the White House, the more mainstream Republicans, this is incredibly dismaying to them as well. Well, I think it's also dismaying to um, some Georgia Republicans here in the state who really firmly believe that if Donald Trump is their nominee, that they are in grave danger of losing the White House once again. If it comes down to a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, um, they have said to me, what has what has Donald Trump done in the last uh, two years to change anybody's minds. They're very, very worried about that outcome. But I think a line that Donald Trump uses at his rallies when he does have time to do a rally 
he says uh, to his supporters, um, they're not after me, they're after you. And they have to go through me to get to you. And that resonates in that crowd. So it's not resonating with the entire GOP electorate, but it certainly is obviously resonating with a majority of it. So um, that puts his other uh, his other rivals who are just going to fish fries and uh, crawfish boils in New Hampshire. <laughs> it's a lot harder to... How do you run against if a guy like that? If only one of them could get arrested for a <laughs> felony. Know. You can't get arrested in this town. Sorry. Got to leave that to Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. Well, still to come, as Republicans in the U.S. House scramble to find a new leader, Donald Trump inserts himself into the race for speaker, and he says he might even take the job himself. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Tia, you're keeping close track of the Republicans' new race for Speaker of the House. Majority Leader Steve Scalise and longtime firebrand Jim Jordan are lobbying for votes from the GOP Conference for the Job. But now Donald Trump has announced his endorsement of Jim Jordan, and he even said he might be in D.C. next week. What is going on, Tia? Tell us <laughs> tell us what we should know. Yeah, it's a lot going on because Donald Trump has said he prefers Jim Jordan, which is not as much of a surprise. Jim Jordan's one of the co-founders of the House Freedom Caucus. He was the first chair of the House Freedom Caucus big conservative, big Donald Trump supporter. Um, But Donald Trump also has said, hey, if y'all needs a short-term speaker, I'd be willing to serve, which is something we've heard from Marjorie Taylor Greene. She says she's going to nominate Donald Trump. She thinks Donald Trump should be the next speaker. It won't happen, but any vote for Trump is a vote not for Scalise or Jordan, and they need 218 Republicans out of, like, 223 in order to become speaker so it's just kind of a mess also now donald trump is talking about coming to dc to possibly to meet with republicans about the speaker's race you've got uh scalise and jordan and perhaps this third candidate representative hearn now doing some type of town hall with Fox News, almost like debate style, which is really ticking other Republicans off because they're like, we have been called the clown show for the next for the last week. People have been saying the Republican Party is a clown show. And now you guys are bringing the clown show to Fox News. We don't think it's helpful. So that may or may not happen. But right now that's scheduled to happen next week. And then Republicans are going to meet behind closed doors on Tuesday to hear from the candidates. 
And then their goal is on Wednesday morning to take a vote, just Republicans, to see if they could, again, build consensus around one speaker candidate, because what they don't want to do is go to the floor with Democrats for the official House speaker vote, not have anyone who can get to 218 and have to have multiple rounds of balloting like what Kevin McCarthy went through in January. So there's so much still up in the air. Tia, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we're going to bring Bill into it. What should our listeners know about the appreciable differences between these candidates? Because people certainly may not have heard of Hearn before. Um, we've heard of Jim Jordan because President Trump gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom after he defended Trump so thoroughly in his impeachment inquiry. Um, and then, of course, Patrick McHenry is the um, acting speaker. Right now, I guess he's the is he the speaker pro tem? He definitely has a yeah. security detail. Um, and then uh, Steve Scalise uh, is uh, well known to House members, a Louisiana conservative. Um, is there any major difference? How, how are people going to decide, do you think? So let's start with Representative Hearn, because he's probably, like you mentioned, the one that people know the least about. He's from Oklahoma. His claim to fame is he's the chair of the largest kind of subgroup of House Republicans, which is the Republican Study Committee. Um, And so most Republicans are members of the study committee. I think their membership is about at, again, about 160 or 180 of those 220-ish Republicans. So because his natural constituency is large, he in the Republican study committee is considered conservative. Um, his constituency is large. That being said, he's considered a long shot. He isn't even officially in the race. Then you have Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is from Ohio. Again, he's House Freedom Caucus, very conservative, very Trumpy. And the way he's marketing himself is the reason why McCarthy's out is because he couldn't control these hardliners who come from, you know, the extreme right. These are my people. I can get them in check. So that's how he's marketing himself. But there are a lot of Republicans who believe he's too much of a hardliner to be an effective speaker. And then the front runner is considered Steve Scalise. He's from Louisiana. His personal story is kind of remarkable. He was very badly injured when that guy um, ambushed House Republicans as they were practicing for a charity baseball game. And he was shot. He was injured, um, came back from that. He's currently undergoing treatment for cancer. He's currently the second in command of the Republicans in the House. He's their majority leader, Um, but he is no ally. Him and McCarthy have a working relationship, but apparently it's been pretty strained because McCarthy always felt that Scalise was kind of waiting in the wings to take him out. So there are some McCarthy allies who are almost like never Scalisers, I'm reading. Um, But (laughs) there are some people like Buddy Carter. He was one of the first to come out and endorse Scalise for speaker. I think Democrats feel like Scalise is someone they can work with. He's still all these people we're talking about are still pretty conservative. But Scalise is apparently a very nice guy. The kind of guy you want to get a beer with is how one, I think that was Punchbowl News who described him in that way. Um, And he's considered the front runner. But again, he can only lose five House Republican votes 
to rob him of the 218 magic number. And the question is, are there McCarthy allies who are never Scalisers and will not give him the votes? And then the last thing I'll say is there are still some people who believe that nobody's going to be able to get to 218 and they're going to have to come back crawling on their knees, begging Kevin McCarthy of California to be speaker again. Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't Kevin McCarthy love that turn of events? That would, yes. You know, he it, it I, in a way, I did feel bad for him. It was just a handful of people who tossed him. Um, but he gave that handful all the power they needed when he agreed to the rule of the motion to vacate to let a single disgruntled member and who doesn't have one person who's mad at us every single day, um, (laughs) a single member to bring a motion to vacate. And then you need just a handful to seal the deal for Kevin McCarthy. You know, I'm interested in, by the way, I think Austin Scott, uh, Tia, if I have this right, has also tweeted that he supports Scalise uh, 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 for the uh, speaker's uh, job. But here's what, what I'm, I'm a little troubled about, or not troubled about, don't quite understand. We know that a great majority of the Republican conference uh, supports Donald Trump at all costs. They are in his camp. They're afraid to alienate him uh, in any way. So I'm, I'm wondering how much power Trump's endorsement of Jim Jordan has in terms of rallying votes for Jordan, Tia. So what we're still unclear of is how much Trump has been working behind the scenes all along on what's going on. You know, there was a great, I think it was the Washington Post that did the article about Steve Bannon and how he was behind the scenes talking to Matt Gates and other Republicans and encouraging them to kind of, you know, encouraging the chaos caucus. And um, we know Steve Bannon is the Donald Trump advisor. Sorry, that was the New York Times that did the Steve Bannon, um, the headline, Steve Bannon helped stoke the McCarthy ouster. And so where Steve Bannon is, usually the thinking, at least, isn't far away from where President Trump is. We know that President Trump did not say one way or another on Kevin McCarthy. So you can say, well, uh, Donald Trump never said he wanted McCarthy out, but he never publicly said, hey, guys, don't get rid of McCarthy either, because that probably could have saved McCarthy. Um, So the question is, how much is is he working behind the scenes? We really don't know. But the fact that other others in the Trump world, again, we know that he has endorsed Jim Jordan, but how much will that impact people? That's a question. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. If Trump world was backing McCarthy's ouster, that means she defied Trump because she stayed loyal to McCarthy. Now, whether she defied Trump on purpose or whether, again, Trump was remaining neutral and said, Marjorie, just do what you want to do. Um, but I think that there are enough House Republicans to finally answer your question, Bill. I think there are another enough House Republicans that Trump can sway, that he can be the difference maker. Because, again, we're only talking about a handful of people can be a difference maker. OK, well, we know that Senate Republicans would love for House Republicans to make a decision because we do have a federal spending deadline coming up um, and a potential government shutdown looming. Well, now it's time for one of our favorite segments of the week, the Politically Georgia call-in hotline. 
You can now call into the Politically Georgia hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your questions right here on the show. The number, the number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Shane, what do we have in our mailbag? I know it's not really a mailbag, but who called in? You know, we've, we've called it a mailbag forever, but there is no mail and there is no bag. <laughs> and I guess some people don't like that. They don't like that we've been calling it a mailbag. <laughs> people have been pointing it out for quite some time. Some people. I've caved. Okay. I, I wanna, so that should who? only be the only thing they get upset with us about. <laughs> well, that would be great. I did just open us up for more. I'm going to revisit this. I'm going to okay. revisit this. <laughs> so who left us a voicemail? Well, we got a voicemail by by a caller who, in fact, tried to reach you, Bill Nygut, on Facebook. And Check uh, your Facebook, Bill. Yeah. So... But he wised up. He called the uh, the Politically Georgia call-in hotline mailbag. Perfect. We're going to work on that. Uh, but this is Ward in Atlanta. I wanted to find out who the Washington Post columnist was who Bill Nygut mentioned in last week's show concerning the uh, government shutdown. Thank you very much. Ward, I admire your persistence and apologize that I didn't respond on Facebook. I am terrible at responding to people on Facebook. Uh, But the answer to your question is it was a column that Karen Tumulty, the Washington Post columnist, wrote. And the point of her piece was this was back when it looked like there could be a shutdown of the government because of the extreme right wing uh, uh, group in the House um, were going to prevent a a deal from being made. And, And what Karen pointed out was that um, of the group of real far-right representatives, um, they were elected by tiny, tiny um, numbers of their own uh, voters out there. So, for instance, um, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, their elections, only their, their primary elections, had the participation of only 17% of the voters who were eligible to cast ballots in their elections. And and so Tumulty's point was, how do we get to a point when such a tiny, tiny number of people give so much power to uh, people like a Matt Gates and a Marjorie Taylor Greene? Okay, well, there's your answer, Ward. Uh, Shane, what's up next? And I'll tell you what, I'll put a link to that column yeah. in our podcast it's- description for you, Ward, so uh, you can go check it out. And lastly, we got an email that was sent in to our friend, Greg Bluestein, who will be back with us on the next episode of Politically Georgia. This is from Sue. She writes, hi, Greg. I'm an old political rewind fan from St. Simons. Just writing to say thank you, all caps. I'm so happy. I just found y'all have resurrected the best hour of radio under a new name. And I'm paraphrasing what the old station carries now just doesn't compare. You rock. Keep up the great work. So thanks, Sue. That's awesome. We're glad to have you and glad you uh, you found us here on Politically Georgia. Yes. Sue, you're about to have the newest best hour of radio coming your way starting October 30th. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to our next segment of the episode. Maybe my second favorite of the week. It's our who's up and who's down segment. We always like to end on a high note. So we start with our who's downs. Tia, who is your who's down for the week? Uh, There are many you could choose from. Yeah, I mean, the obvious is Kevin McCarthy, because (coughs) as much as he 
kind of tried to be jubilant and keep a smile on his face. At the end of the day, it was so apparent how badly he wanted to be House Speaker. And um, in just nine months, it's over for him. And I want to give an honorable mention who's down to Marjorie Taylor Greene because she was my who's up for a couple of weeks. So I think it's worth noting that in losing McCarthy as Speaker, she loses a big ally. Bill, who's your who's down? Uh, Sidney Powell. Uh, because this week, Sidney Powell lost her effort uh, to uh, have her case dismissed. She joins a long list of others who uh, were looking for uh, judges to do uh, determine different aspects of their cases. They either wanted to be tried in federal court. They wanted their cases dismissed. That includes David Schaefer, Kenneth Chesborough, Kathy Lake, Latham, Jeffrey Clark. So welcome to the club, Sidney Powell. Okay, and my who's down is also Kevin McCarthy. If you make history by becoming the first House Speaker deposed to leave the House Speaker list, you are going to get a double who's down. Tia, who is your who's up? So keeping with the same theme of how all this House Speakership stuff has shaken out, I'm going to give my who's up to Liz Cheney because there were news reports that she was in contact with some of the um, House Democrats and encouraged them not to help bail out Speaker McCarthy. And so there were memes going around that Game of Thrones memes where it's like, tell... tell Cersei it was me so there's a Liz Cheney meme that's like tell Kevin it was me so um, maybe she's somewhere a little bit delighted to see um, someone who kind of marginalized her when she was a Republican in Congress um, see his downfall okay Bill who is your who's up for the week Um, Marty Kemp Marty Kemp this week was uh, featured at uh, a uh, an event run by an organization called United to Safeguard America from Illegal Trade. That was They had a big conference out in uh, Salt Lake City. And Marty Kemp presented a video in which she talked about the work that she's led uh, to uh, save uh, uh, young women who have been caught up in sexual slavery, the sex trade. And she pointed out that in, in just 2022 alone, 116 victims were rescued through that effort, and that the prosecutions against the people who were holding them resulted in 100% convictions. I think that's remarkable. That's a great one. She's been working on that issue for a long time, made a big, big difference here in the state and even nationwide. Well, my who's up goes to state leaders, state education leaders, including the governor, um, who have created the Georgia Match Program, sending a letter out to every high school senior in the state this week, letting them know which Georgia college is ready to get an application for them. It's a way to increase enrollment at some of the lesser enrolled schools around the state, which are also wonderful. Also to encourage some of those high school seniors who hadn't considered going to college to go and a way to increase the workforce here in the state who are going to be ready for all the jobs that are being created. Um, So that's my who's up. Way to go, good policy. You got to say it when you see it. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all of the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of the podcast. We'll begin releasing new episodes every weekday beginning next Tuesday. We'll see you next time on the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. 
I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.